so we should talk. You have a lot going on. Um, and I don't know, I'm sure you have stuff that you want to talk about because you're an idea guy. Um, I do want to make sure that we talk a little bit about nested scrolls and about Turing and Burroughs, which are both really interesting, and I want to talk about the big aha. Mm -hmm. Um, and in any particular order, or if there's other stuff you want to talk about, and if there isn't, then I'll ask you questions, but you're a big talker, so... Okay, well, I could start with yeah. Nested Scrolls. Okay. I had always wanted to write an autobiography, and I was putting it off, and then uh, I, had a, I had to go to the hospital. I had a, like some vein burst in my brain, and uh, I could have died, but then I didn't die, and I got, wow. I got all well. It was, it's what they used to call apoplexy. Yeah. And it was funny, because I had just finished writing a story with Bruce Sterling, and I think those some of my best work, the stories that we've done together, but Bruce can be very, he's a very opinionated person, and yeah. very outspoken, and so collaborating with him is always, well, we usually, about two-thirds of the way through, we end up arguing about what we're doing. Right. And so then... After I got out of the hospital, I told Bruce, well, you see, you almost killed me by making me so angry. <laughs> and he said, well, if you would just accept that I'm always right, you wouldn't have this problem. <laughs> but anyway, that was then, but I, I realized, I, I mean, I could have died, and I thought, well, you know, if you ever are going to write your autobiography, you really ought to do it now. And so then, uh, so I got into that, and... Uh, I, I wrote it fairly quickly in about five months, and then, then I set it aside. I got into a novel, Jim and the Flims, and then, uh, then I, I thought, okay, now I'm going to go back and look at the autobiography, and you know, make sure that I wasn't just out of it. You know, I was still recuperating for a little while, but it was it looked pretty good, and then I, I, I polished it some more, and I wanted it to be. Uh, I didn't want it to be auto, you know, exhaustive because. I mean, Isaac Asimov did these very exhaustive autobiographies that, that were interesting, but I didn't want to do that kind of thing. I wanted to be more like, oh, more like I was taking a car trip with somebody and we're seeing the car and I'm telling them stories while we're going along. And uh, th that's one of the difficulties in writing uh, an autobiography is that your life isn't really this linear string of events because right. everything reminds you of something else and everything branches out. It's... It's like a fractal. It's like this bush, you know, and then you're trying to turn it into a vine. Right, right. So it's it's tricky, and it's also it's also you sort of want to kind of keep moving. It's like you're skating on the surface, and you don't want to just fall in and just wallow in endless amounts of detail. Well, I'm sure one anecdote leads directly to another anecdote that is not linearly. Yeah, often attached. That's that. You yeah, know? yeah, but I did in the. I did organize it in linear order, though, because that's that's what people kind of want, you know. And actually, David Hartwell advised me to put in date, lots of dates. Always mention the date when something was happening, and that's useful because if uh, I was looking at Virginia Woolf's journals, and she wouldn't have the dates of when things were happening, and then it would be confusing. Right. But it's just to stick that in. And then uh, at first, I didn't think. First, P.S. said they would publish it in England, and then, then Tor said, well, if they're publishing it, we might as well publish it, too. Because <laughs> we, uh, we can use their layout. Right, right. And, uh, so, I guess that works. <laughs> well, 
so it so I was happy to get it out, and it it's done fairly well. Um, well it's nice to have it in the hardcover too, because the the PS one was soft, wasn't it? Uh, no, they did a hard also. They did. Yeah, they did also sort of a collector's edition. That was. I don't think we saw that one. Yeah. And, uh, but it's always, with so many of my books, I would think, okay, this is the one that'll break me out into the mainstream. This isn't, you know, a science fiction book. It's a memoir of somebody who, you know, isn't just a science fiction person. You know, I'm a mathematician. I'm a computer scientist. So maybe we'll get, you know, a review in the Times. And right. But uh, that didn't happen. But uh, I'm glad I got it out there. And... Uh, I mean, you have such an interesting history. Um, knowing the people that you've known, I'm surprised that you didn't actually pick up a lot more attention. Well, I have met some, some yeah, over the years, I've gotten to meet, I mean, I met the famous logician, Kurt Gödel. Okay. That was a big deal when I was in graduate school. He was like, you know, he's like the smartest man. I think the smartest man I would ever meet. And uh, just an amazing person, like a guru. But. Uh, he always knew what I was going to say before I said it. You know. and Did was, you spend a lot of time with him? Uh, only a couple of hours, yeah. but that was such a, an important event for me. Yeah. It's like seeing the guru in his cave. Right, right. Yeah, that was a big deal. And then I got to meet Allen Ginsberg. We were at, there was this sort of school in Naropa called, uh, they used to call it the Jack Kerouac Institute of Further Studies. And uh, now they call it the Naropa Institute. And the Beats would always be there. Oh, Ginsburg and Burroughs and Corso were there. And this was about 1982. And uh, I went out there and I taught a course on... Actually, I was just teaching a course on the philosophy of mathematics. But I was even... I always wanted to be a Beatnik writer. Uh, or a science fiction writer, or a Beatnik science fiction writer. Right. So I was, you know, I was thrilled to meet these guys. And, as soon as I met Alan, um, I said, can I get your blessing? Because uh, there's this sort of, it's sort of like in a myth where, you know, you meet the old writer or the, the old guru, the old teacher, and you say, I need your blessing. And so he was into it. So right away, he just slaps his hand down the top of my head <laughs> and says, bless you. And I said, you know, I, I want to be a writer like you. And I always liked you. And so that was good. It felt really good. And uh, I got to give a copy of White Light to Burroughs. And he looked, he said it looked far out. Appropriately. <laughs> <laughs> it made me happy. And then uh, Sheckley had always been a, a big hero of mine. He was the first, I guess he was really the first science fiction writer. I read him when I was about 13. and. I, I liked science fiction a lot then, in any case, you know, like anybody in those times. This was 1959. Uh, you know, I liked Asimov, I liked Heinlein. And, uh, but Sheckley, to me, he spoke to me more than anyone else. Like, there was that, there's two aspects of his work that, that I myself have taken over, is that it's sort of funny. It's not necessarily... It's not like you're just going for laughs, but, you know, there's sort of a satire in it, a humor in it. And then it's also the feeling that, that he's writing about real people that he knows. He's writing about himself or his, his family, his friends. And that's something that I came to call transrealism. I, I like to do this thing where my novels are 
are rooted in my, my actual experience. So meeting Sheckley was another thing that was a big deal. I met him because I was trying to sell a story to Omni, and then Sheckley had bought it, and then some someone of his higher ups said, no, don't don't publish that. <laughs> and then I, I, I was in New York a few weeks later and went out for dinner with him, and then he was living with Jay, Jay Rothbell Sheckley. They were married then, yeah. And then uh, another another incident with Sheckley was kind of cool. He had this other friend, um, Marty. I can't remember Marty's last name. And Marty uh, had a connection with Tim Leary. And Tim Leary had this idea that he wanted to have a TV show sort of like uh, sort of like Nova, you know, like, like Carl Sagan. Right. And it could have been an interesting show. Uh, be various modern topics. He's, you know, a very charming man. And uh, so then Sheckley and I go over to Leary's house and we're having a story conference. And that was that was kind of wild. Uh, I, I wasn't high because I was very anxious, but I think Bob might have been high. And actually, at that point, I was also living, I'd started working as a computer scientist and then in, in Silicon Valley in a I had this special circuit board that you can put into your old PC computer. This would have been around 1987, a long time ago. And it was showing these kinds of graphics that I was very interested in. And they were sort of psychedelic. They were called cellular automata. Mm -hmm. And Tim, Tim thought that was great. Mm -hmm. So then he, was, he would mention cellular automata from then on. So it was, yeah, I, I've been fortunate to meet a number of my heroes over the years. It seems like you really, um, you, I mean, you're very philosophical. You have a big philosophy about how you write. And um, is that, I mean, there's so many writers that, you know, if you talk to them about how they write, they sit down at a typewriter and they're like, I oh, just, the words come out. Mm -hmm. And it's, it, it's boggling to me because I think that, you know, people think about what they're doing and they, and they do this thing and they do it with intent and there's a chaotic and, whatever element to it that comes out that makes your writing you in some ways. But um, do you want to talk about building that theory or, I don't know, you didn't really, like we looked at your last interview, you didn't talk too much about mm -hmm. that, you touched on it briefly, or does it still hold for you? Yeah, what, well if I'm going to write a novel, there's a number of things that come into it. Uh, first of all, there has to be this would be like a place I want to go. There used to be this would be like some scene, something that attracts me to it, something about the world or something that's going to happen. So at the beginning, it's sort of like I'm standing at the edge of a a wilderness, and there's there's this mountain I can see in there somewhere, and I say I want to get there, but you know I don't really know how I'm going to get there, or how I'm going to get back, and uh, when I pick the characters. As I, I was touching on earlier, I like, I don't always do this, but I like to have the characters very clear in my mind. And particularly when I was younger, I, I tended to say, well, I'm going to have this character be like like my father, uh, like the character Cobb Anderson in the software, in the Wear series. He was somewhat modeled on my father. And the character Stay High in those books, he was modeled on a guy that, a guy that I knew actually, he was the younger brother of a friend of mine. And uh, that's this trans real thing. And then 
the virtue of that, of modeling your characters on actual people, is that then they're they're not smooth. They're sort of irregular. They're not they're not like like dolls. That, that's one of the the weaknesses sometimes in in a sort of generic golden age sort of science fiction novel would be that the characters are are very interchangeable people. Yeah. They're, they're not. They might say, "Well, let's give this guy a limp," you know, but but then you know, yeah. what else? You know? Yeah. yeah. So uh, and now I, I've gotten some more. I guess I've sort of run out of people <laughs> to use for my characters. I tend to to sort of make the characters up a little bit more, but. I'll, th- I'll think about them. I'll sort of write a little life story for them and and work that out. And I've also, over the years, I've started planning my novels. Uh, I find it's very hard to write an outline because, again, there's the peaks, or maybe two peaks I'm going to go to, and there's the woods. And I don't really know what I'm going to hit in the woods. You know, is there going to be a canyon? Is there going to be a river? So it's not... I, I can't really exhaustively describe the outline, but sometimes when you're selling a book or trying to sell a book to to a publisher without having written it, they often they would like to see an outline. Right. So, but the outline when I've written them, I've never viewed them as really at all being chiseled in stone. Right. Generally, when I fi- if I have an outline, when I finish a chapter. Then I go ahead and revise the whole rest of the outline. <laughs> you know what's going on now. It's right. opened up some possibilities. Right. There's things I have to take care of. So uh, I actually saw a proposal once of it must have been uh, pattern recognition or spook country that somebody I can't remember who's this editor. He sent it to us because the proposal is completely different than the actual book came up. Yeah. It was like he had this. He had a good idea. We knew that there would be a good story at the end, you know. Uh-huh. The yeah. main thing is to prove that you're thinking about something interesting, you know. Yeah, that's gives <laughs> yeah, they just want to see that there are some category of ideas yeah. that you yeah. So they don't they've never held me. Nobody's editors ever said, Well look in the editor. Right. You, I'm not sure they really read the the outline very close. <laughs> it says there, that's there. Right. Yeah. I see see some good words. But uh then the other thing I'll be doing will be working out ideas more maybe than a lot of science fiction writers. I did, after all, get a PhD in mathematics, and I worked as a computer scientist, and so I, I really have a sort of scientific frame of mind where I want to have crazy ideas in the book, but I want them to be have a sort of internal logic right. where I want I, I want it to hang together. And so whenever I, I make something happen, then I want to say, well, how does that fit in with my theory of, of how, you know, how the hyperjump to another place in space is working or how the travel to a parallel world is working. I'm always working on this whole theory of it. And that's actually, you'd think that would be limiting, but actually it's not, because when I work out the theory, there will be little aspects of it that suggest things that could happen that I might not have thought of happening. Like the, the book I'm working on now, The Big Aha, uh, there's a certain theory of telepathy based on quantum mechanics that you, you would, in some sense, merge your wave function with someone. And that works, but there's this catch in that when you then separate back into two people, you can't really remember 
the experience. So that's sort of something that I hadn't really seen people do with telepathy. You can have telepathy with people, but then afterwards you can't remember what you said to them. Right. You know. But that's then, it's sort of an interesting thing to think about, because then it's sort of like you saw somebody in a dream, and you'll have these memories of it, but they're, they're kind of surreal, and they're, they're maybe not accurate. Right. Or like when you had this sort of deep, romantic conversation with somebody, you don't necessarily remember the words, but you'll remember the feelings. Right. So that's... That's a very cool idea. Yeah, it's, and it's called Oblivious Link, you get a, <laughs> or Oblivious Teep. A teep. I like to just call telepathy teep. That's another thing that I do while I'm working on a book is I kind of invent a language for it. I like to have, you know, short, easy slang words. That because usually in language slang, language is it's like this tumbler. It's like it's like when you tumble rocks to make them into gemstones. Everything's been smoothed over the years by everybody using it over and over, and. You don't want to have a slang word that's awkward or not easy to say. And then I'll get down to thinking, well, what does the word sound like? What does it remind people of? Like in the Ware Tetralogy, I talked to, I called the robots the boppers. Because I thought that was, I just liked the sound of that boppers. It's like big boppers. And somewhere Thomas Pynchon talks about a robo bopster. And uh, so that's, that's another thing I'll work on. And while I'm working on the book, I'll, I'll generate it. I keep a sort of document that ends up being as long as the novel, which Paul de Filippo is, can't believe I do that, you know. But it's to me, it's when I, I don't necessarily want to work on the book, then I'll work on on the, the notes. You know, I'll write writing notes. I tried notes. to open them. My computer won't open them. I think I, I have a really old Mac. It, didn't, it doesn't like PDFs if they're huh. at all fiddly, but I am. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I have all the PDFs of all the notes posted online, but uh, I will, I'll check them if they're, they should have. It was coming up as corrupted, but again, I have a, the computer I was working on was uh-huh, uh-huh. not well, the, the brightest. Well, that's bit rot. Uh, I, they were made with an older version of Acrobat. Yeah. So I could read, I'll remake them. But anyway. Oh, that's a neat idea. Does anybody else do that? I don't think so. Yeah. Own annotated works, as it were. <laughs> well, that's it. Yeah, that's just this weird scholarly thing I've done is that there actually is not very much scholarly interest in my work. I, I don't know exactly why that is. Uh, it's funny how certain things become accepted among like academic researchers that this is important. Right. I mean, they're always teaching you know certain books in high school. There's something about my books that <laughs> they've never achieved quite the acclaim that I would like. I mean, though I, I suppose almost every writer says that, you know, that it's, mm. you know, whatever you have, you, you, you want, want the next letter, yeah. you want to be at the top of the next one. Yeah. yeah, there's a little bit of that. I think it's somebody was just saying to me that they went out and spoke to a bunch of people about writing and the thank you. Mm-hmm. Thanks. The um, somebody. You know, the question was like, how can you still be passionate about your work and you're so successful now? Uh-huh. And it, it's somebody who, like, you know, has had four books out and uh-huh. lost their editor during the Black Wednesday and, uh-huh. you know, just got picked back on my tour. It's not like, a, and he, he said, I 
I just couldn't break my hearts and tell them this is not success, right? right. But from that point of view, it is really yes. like yeah. having a book out as a success. It's such a yeah, yeah. terrible succession of further successes to look for, but... Well, certainly when I when I started writing, I I didn't quite grasp what a long row it is to hoe if yeah. you, if you want to be a writer for your whole life. I mean, I've published thirty six books now, wow. or thirty five. I'm now working on my thirty six, the big aha, and that's my twenty first novel. So well, it, well, it just goes on and on. So, um, let's talk a little bit about. Trying girls, which is a really interesting yeah. story. How yeah. did you even like? Where has this been percolating since you met them, or is it a, like? Well, that was yeah. Turing and Burroughs. Well, partly because again, when I moved to California in 1986, uh, I started working in San Jose State, and uh, before I had been a, a mathematician with a specialty in mathematical logic, and then at San Jose State. I sort of retooled. I said, I'll start teaching computer science instead. And so I got to be pretty knowledgeable about computers. And I, t I t worked there about 20 years. So I was there sort of riding the Silicon Valley wave from around 1986 to 2006. Wow. And that was exciting. I yeah. And I even dropped out of teaching for a couple of years, and I worked at Autodesk and was writing some software with them. I helped write the software to accompany James Glick's book on chaos. So one of the big figures in computer science is Alan Turing. And he's this sort of legendary figure. He was uh, one of the, he generated this idea of what is called a Turing machine, which is a sort of simple abstraction of a computer. And he was able to prove these interesting theorems that, uh, oh, that you can't, well, a, a sort of daily example, when you're on your computer and you're waiting for it to finish do, doing something, you'll see a wait icon, like an hourglass, something like mm -hmm. that. And Turing showed that even in principle, it's impossible to write a program that would predict how long the wait is going to be, hmm. which is strange. It's, this, it's sort of like this self-reference thing. The, the computations can't really know everything about what computations will do. Hmm. And so that was uh, <coughs> sort of this fascinating area. And then during his life, he had this way of switching subjects. I mean, <coughs> when he then he got into actually helping to design and build some of the first electronic computers. And then he was involved with the code-breaking effort in World War II for the German Enigma code. And then near the end of his life, he was <coughs> interested in biocomputation. And he was looking into how <clears throat> certain mixtures of chemicals will produce patterns, such as you see on the coats of animals, like the spot on a cow. Mm -hmm. He wrote this funny, or to me, funny paper. It's called something like morph morphogenesis. And he did this immense calculation, and the output was he got a single black spot, like you would see on the back of a cow. It <laughs> like an intense amount of work to get yeah, a spot. <laughs> yeah, really intense. <laughs> Took like this great mathematician and he worked on it for months and 
he was doing a lot of the computations by hand, and he had all these differential equations. So that was... <clears throat> and then the thing that sort of... this The sort of kind of exciting kind of thing that makes Turing especially of interest to people is that he was a homosexual, and he was... He had this personality like some mathematicians and computer scientists do of sort of being socially unaware. He'll just say whatever he thinks. So he would just tell people, you know, I, I'm a homosexual, or and he said, would you like to have sex with me tonight? <laughs> and this is like the 1950s in England. Right. This is not done, you know. And then uh, he got in trouble. It's a long story, but he ended up getting busted, and then... Uh, he was kind of despondent. They made him take these treatments. Were they really, like, enforcing his heterosexuality? Well, the thing was, he he hired a guy to just have sex with him, and then the guy stole something from his house. So Turian goes to the police and says, this man stole something. And they said, well, why did you ask, you know, this, you know, this sort of raffish, um, kind of lower social stratum person to your house. He said, well, to have sex with him, and we did this and this and this. <laughs> so that's all real. Yeah. Mm. And then they had this crazy idea that they should give him uh, female hormones, and that would reduce his sex desire. You know, it made him start growing breasts. It's like the same hormones a, a trans transsexual right. would take. Yeah. But, <laughs> but then... He, it's like an unlikely theory. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, it's crazy. But then, anyway, he was done with that. But then, for whatever reason, I mean, maybe this had a bad effect on him. It's easy to imagine that it would. But he was depressed, and apparently he killed himself. And he was really crazy about the movie of Snow White. He thought that was a really cool movie, and he used to dance down the hall and sing the sing the song from the movie, you know. There's something about, you know, one side of the apple is good, one side is poisonous. And so when he he was found dead with an apple that had cyanide on it. So the they concluded that he had put cyanide on the apple and then had bitten it, just to, for a weird way to kill himself. And I've always had a theory, which may or may not be true, that the British equivalent of the CIA, I guess they would call it the M5, right. uh, murdered him. Because, I mean, this was the Cold War period, and... They were incredibly paranoid about homosexuals knowing state secrets, because then they said, well, these men can be blackmailed. And someone with no self-censoring ability, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he'll be blackmailed. Though, again, Turing probably wouldn't have cared, you know, because he, he would tell anybody who cared that he was homosexual. But, you know, the, the spy master, right. would say. And he, he was doing this thing. He had promised as part of his parole not to have sex with anyone in England. But then he would, you know, go on vacation to, to Greece or to, to Scandinavia and have boyfriends there. And then sometimes the boyfriends would visit him in England. And, you know, he would debate to himself whether this meant sex with someone in England, if the person wasn't English. <laughs> <laughs> so the setup in the book is that Turing has a guy visiting him uh, from Greece, and they're about to have sex. And then, but the, the, the vice squad is sort of sneaking around watching Turing and then they send he's in a hotel with this boyfriend and the cops send up a pot of tea to the room that has cyanide in it and Turing's boyfriend drinks it and he dies and so then Turing says okay they're out to kill me I have to run 
but what I'll do is I'll put this guy in my bed in my house and I'll leave but before I do that I'll we'll switch faces but here you know we're getting into science fiction okay. but again it, it's not completely unlikely given that he was doing these experiments in morphogenesis so he basically gets a speck of, of skin from his nose and his boyfriend's nose and then grows two faces in the oven and they put them on the puts them on the dead guy and puts the guy's face on his. And then he flees off to Tangier. Now, I wrote this story as a standalone quite a while ago, uh, maybe 10 years ago, and then I read it in a reading in San Francisco. They have a week, a monthly reading there, SF and SF. At that time, uh, Jeremy Lassen was there, and he said, you know, if you ever turn this into a novel, we can, I'll publish it. And then, uh, I put, the, you know, I kept it in the back of my mind. And then at some point, I couldn't think of what else to do. So I wrote a sequel, a story. And I thought, I don't know if this will be a novel, but it'll be another story. About touring in Tangier, and he meets up with William Burroughs. And then uh, they get into this thing, touring intensifies the, the biotech thing, where you can actually turn your body into this sort of slug, you know, that slimes around. It's just vintage 1950s mm-hmm. styles alien invasion, mm-hmm. mutant invasion, science fiction. And anybody you touch has this then ability to turn into a, a slug. And it's contagious, and they have telepathy. And uh, and you can have sex. You can sort of, like, like these videos on YouTube you might have seen of slugs having sex. They hang from the ceiling with a rope of mucus. And <laughs> yeah, I think I have not seen that. Slime, I would probably remember. Yeah, slime around each other. And, they're hermaphroditic anyway, so right. it's uh, so then I had a lot of fun, and then I went ahead and expanded it out to a novel. I love the letters from Burroughs. Yeah, that was another thing I really liked doing. It was really fun. I'm a huge fan. The, the completely different styles of writing yeah. to different people in his life. And yeah, yeah, I'm a huge Burroughs fan, and I always liked his attitude that it's just you know completely sort of in your face, you know, mm-hmm. just absolutely. No compromise, but also so funny, and then and homosexual, but in a sort of it's not in a sort of oh weepy way. It's not like he has some some disease. He's right. just you know, this is what I like, you know, right. in your face, and and the same with the drugs. So yeah, I had a lot of fun writing. Uh, I've studied Burroughs letters very closely over the years. Uh, the Yage letters is a good one, and so I'd, yeah, I wrote some of the chapters in, in the framework of, of Letters from Burroughs. So then it, it, I think it came out as quite a nice novel. But then by that point, uh, uh, Tor really didn't want to touch it. It was just a little too outrageous, I think. For it has its gonzo elements. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's great. Yeah. I really like it. But it is chock full of stuff and um, extremes of behavior and and science fictional things going on with skugs or however you pronounce yeah, it. The skugs. <laughs> well it's funny, I always think well, I see books being reviewed in the Times and they're outrageous and then nobody cares and then I write what I think is outrageous and I'm even holding back <laughs> and people are no, no, that's too much. But then and as I said, Jeremy and Nightshade had wanted to publish it, but by that time Nightshade was they were sort of going down. Yeah. And well, and it's not a great time. I think they, 
just because of the economics of the last five years, it's not a great time for publishers to make. It's yeah. not a great time for places like Tor mm -hmm. to take chances. Yeah. They are they are very much sort of hunkered down and being safe. I think it's changing a little bit now, but that um, was yeah. this year or came out yeah. last year. Yeah, in 2012. Yeah, so that's well, it's just a... Well, my whole life as a writer, which started about, oh gosh, about 35 years ago, Every year somebody said, this is the worst year in publishing ever. <laughs> I'm sorry to be the person this year. No, but this, <laughs> no, this year it is, because the difference now is there aren't any bookstores, you know? Yeah. Borders is gone, the Barnes & Nobles are closing down. It's just right, you got to get your reviews and you got to have your online presence and blah, yeah. blah, blah. It's just a, it's a crazy thing. But so you decided to... Well, then, yeah, I got a... My old agent... Susan Prodder had died, and I, I got a new agent, uh, and uh, John Silbersack, and he sent it to kind of a number of people, but they're all well. We just don't. We, this is well written, but we don't want to do it. And so then I thought, well, now I'm just finally have to self-publish. And again, as an older writer, the younger writers they don't feel they don't really have. In my era, self-publishing, you know, had this stigma. Right. They don't feel aggrieved to have to yeah. self-publish. Yeah, they're not, like, Although, embarrassed about it. It's funny, though, because somebody like Benford is just over the moon about self-publishing. He thinks it's the best thing ever, you know? He can get his whole backlist out. Well, once and you accept it, yeah, there's yeah. a lot of nice things about it. But it's a... But it's a sort of... It's a psychological step to yeah. take. Well, there's that, and then there's the matter that... You know, depending how you do it. I mean, you can just, you can go to e-reads, which is, in a way, it's almost like self-publishing. They, they will, I mean, they're not, I don't think the bar is that high for them, if you're an established writer, for them to do one of your books. But then... Uh, and they said it, and I mean, they do the work. Yeah, they do all the, the work. But and then, they do a pretty, and they have a yeah, they, good deal. They, they do a nice, they're doing a nice job. They're doing a good service. I've got a couple of books with them. And uh, I noticed they just put out all of Paul DeFilippo's backlist. Well, I was actually weird. thinking about talking to them about Lafferty. Uh, yeah, I think if you can figure out who has the rights. We have the rights. Oh, yeah. Well, that's. We have the rights. Yeah. I, I wouldn't see why not, why they wouldn't do that. Just because they. When is Richard Curtis? We know Richard Curtis. So. Yeah, not everybody likes him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, at least I know him. Like, the other things feel more. We don't want to do it ourselves, and uh, there's other people that we just don't know. And he's yeah. at least pro locus, that helps us a little. Yeah. You know. Well, John Douglas is still there. He's a nice guy. Yeah. No, he's a nice guy. That was who I dealt with. But then, uh, but then because I'm a, to some extent a computer guy, I said, well, I can figure out how to do this myself. Right. Because, I mean, the books I get from e-reads, in the end, uh, well, they, they give me 50% of their net, and then they, there's other charges that so right. in there, so it's really more like I'm getting... Well, in the end, compared to the cover price of the book, I'm getting... You know, I might be getting 20%. Right. And, which is sort of like with Tor, you know. Right. But then I thought, well, if I'm self-publishing, it would be nice to be getting, you know, 50%. So it, I'll figure out how to do it myself. And that... Uh, then that there went seven months. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is the thing. Yeah. I just gave 
doing this big talk to a bunch of young writers about uh, self-publishing versus traditional publishing, and I was like, you know, they're both avenues. But if the end game is to have someone give you money and say, now go write your next thing, then traditional publishing is the is the place to do that. It's nice, because yeah. otherwise you are a publisher. Yes. Right? In one case you're an author, yeah. in the other case you're a publisher. And, you know, if you already have a background in science and you, and you, you know, you feel like this is a very accomplishable thing or you are a marketing machine or you mm -hmm. already do print production or something else, you know, then it's... It's one thing, but there's a lot of people it's not suited for. Well, it's, yeah, just because you're a writer, that's, that's different. Because there's the, as you say, there's the, the sort of computer hacker skill, and then there's the, the marketing skill, which that's, that's actually, that would be my weak point, marketing. Uh, I'm not hard. the most sociable person. Well, it's hard, you know? Yeah. It's hard, it's hard for us. Yeah. You know, like somebody came in and said, you guys should tweet. I'm like, yeah. wow. Yeah. <laughs> Tweet? Yeah. We have to make a magazine. Well, all <laughs> those things, tweet? yeah, they're all, they're all like you're yeah. in a boat, and you say, well, let's make another hole in the boat. Right. And I know. It's yeah. just such a time sink. Just yeah. to do my email, and then I do tweet, and I Facebook, and I have a blog, but those things, they, they really can eat up time. Though, for a writer, it's always good to find ways of wasting time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, than getting incredibly drunk, you know, or having sex with strangers, you know. No, all fine <laughs> traditions and yeah. literature, yeah. but <laughs> not necessarily yeah. the way to get the book written. Well, social networks are a less personally destructive way of wasting time. <laughs> Is that? We hope. Yeah. We hope. I'm sure there are people who are stretching that to. Well, yeah. Taking that to its full potential. Well, Gibson has been tweeting so much. You have to wonder what he's up to. Yeah. Maybe. I'm sure he's, he'll find some he's way got, to... He's got a book coming out right now, you know? So he's still working. Maybe the tweeting will be an element of the book. Yeah. I well, he really um, digs into the... Like, he's he is so excited about the cool things, that the technological... Yes. You know, and the advances and new gigas and all yeah. the stuff that comes out, and, and it, it is so part of what the, like, fodder for his writing mill, you know what I mean? Yes, sure. But I think that it works it hand is. in hand with what he does, you know? Yeah, well you do, from being online, you do find a lot of useful things. Though at this point, I sort of have enough ideas, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I just need to write them down. Yeah. yeah. So talk about, okay, so you, you, um, was this the first one? That you well, there was another angle in, in my getting into self-publishing. There was a book uh, that I admired very much. It was written in the in the seventies. It's called "Be Not Content." It's by a man called William J. Craddock, and he was uh, he wrote this book when he was twenty-one, and he lived in San Jose, uh, and I lived you know in that neighborhood. And this book was sort of the first book by an acid head, hmm. and he started taking it. This was like before even before the Merry Pranksters, you know, really, really early. Right. And they didn't even know what it was exactly. And it's just a, really a fascinating book. He, and he had just this great humor. It's In the book, uh, I'd lost my paperback copy of it. I lent it to somebody. You know, there's sometimes you'll lead, lend a book to somebody and then you'll forget who it was. And right. they're idiots. They don't even read it, you know. <laughs> it's just out there on a yeah, shelf somewhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in a box. Yeah. So um, then... Uh, 
but then I found the paperbacks of his book were, were quite expensive, over $100, you know. Tell me what it's called, Dan. Be Not Content. Be Not Content. So then uh, I blogged about that, and then that's another thing about blogging. People come to you with scraps of information, and then uh, somebody knew his wife, and she lived in Santa Cruz, oh, which is not all that far from where I live. So then I got in touch with her, and I agreed actually to... Uh, I got her to do a contract where I was going to publish the book. And at that point, I'd realized it's not very hard to do an e-book. It really isn't. Uh, and then, while I was figuring that out, I actually, I actually wrote a little book called How to Make an E-Book. <laughs> so, uh, and then uh, I, I blogged about it. So that was, the, that was my first dipping into it. And then his book was more work because I had to scan it and do, uh, do the... Yeah, the OCR thing. But even that, I had some, some good software. It's a thing called Abbey Fine Reader. Yeah. And that, it actually wasn't nearly as hard as I thought it would be. But, I mean, it did. Yeah, I had to proofread it. and I don't know. It used about a month. And and then I got into, well, as long as I can do the ebook, then uh, I thought, well, here, I'm, I'm, it's like I'm building a fallout shelter. I'm going to have safety here. Because even if I can't, can't sell Turing and Burroughs, I'm going to know how to publish it myself. Right. And I said, well, while I'm at it, I'll do my complete stories. Because then, and some people said, well, how do you know it's your complete stories? And I said, oh, because I'm going to upload a new version every couple of years. Right. So. I'll, I'll, and they're yours. You yeah. are actually the person who gets to say that. Yeah. yeah. That's true. <laughs> it doesn't mean I'm never going to write another story. But, right. Yeah. But that, uh, and that's a sort of a hard type of a book to sell to, to somebody. and They're not going to really pay you anything, so right. you're not going to really lose anything doing that yourself. And then I figured out, I said, all right, now I'm going to learn how to do a print book. And that, uh, that was harder because there's this software called InDesign that mm -hmm. most people use. And that's what we use. Yes. Yeah, I mean, Locus yeah. uses it. And it's, I mean, in my years as a programmer and computer science professor, I would say I never found any software that was harder to use than InDesign. <laughs> really? Yeah. Like the wow. Microsoft C++ debugger <laughs> is not easier? as hard. Yeah, it's easier than InDesign. <laughs> well, part of it is Adobe, they really don't have very good documentation. I mean, they have mm -hmm. documentation, but there's this one thing, there's this initial first step to paste a Word document into an InDesign document. You have to hold down the shift key and then press insert. And, and the documentation didn't mention that. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> but then, you know... That's because they all do it so automatically yeah. they don't even know their fingers on the yeah. key anymore. Right? Yeah. But the... You go to the forums and just everything was like that. But then finally, you know, I, I got over the hump. And, uh... The bummer is when they keep changing it because we got... We have is it five or six now. Yeah. And the change between four and five was a big... Big change. They, they took a whole bunch of things out of the... Because you can lay out a mm -hmm. you can lay out a book and then you can generate an EPUB out of it. That's right? a, that's a very good feature. Yeah. yeah, but they changed a bunch of stuff and yeah. we were figuring that out and they don't tell you what. Well, it's especially they hard with, with something like Locus because you've got columns and you've got photos. And I mean, we have to re we re lay out the entire magazine. Yeah, a, a book is a text a book that's all text is is pretty single easy. column. Yeah, it's wonderful. But yeah, that's another another gain if, of learning InDesign because then you can kind of do it once and then you can save as EPUB. Yeah. 
Yeah. And you can easily convert an EPUB to a Mobi for the Kindle. Uh, but that, like I say, that that cost me seven months. But right. in a way, it was interesting. It was again, it was a way of avoiding writing. <laughs> and then by the time I was finished with all that, I, at that point, I realized I'm actually not going to be able to sell Turing and Burroughs. You know, and so I was. Then I said, okay, well here I can I can do it as a. I'll get it on Kindle, and that's really the main ebook market. At first, you imagine the others matter, but yeah. Kindle's ninety percent of it. And then, I mean, you can do the others too; it doesn't hurt. And then, uh, <coughs> I learned how to make the print book. And those, there's also uh, Amazon has this thing called uh, Create Space, where they will list the books on Amazon just like a regular book, and they'll print them on demand. And then I put it on uh, Lightning Source. So, in principle, bookstores can buy it from them. Right. Yeah. They do Ingram and Baker and Taylor. Yeah. Yeah. But it's. That hasn't really seemed to happen. That was. I didn't. At that point, I didn't realize if you want to get listed in Publishers Weekly or Library Journal, you have to send them the book four months before you publish yeah. it. Which, I mean, next time I do this. The thing about which other self publishers have said, there's. It's a, it's a meager cash stream, but it's steady and it lasts for a while. And. You can also sell the ebooks yourself. There's something called eJunkie, where if you get people to go to your site. Right. So I have a site uh, called Transreal Books, and uh, I, I sell. I was over. I guess I've already made about as much off touring in Burroughs as I would have gotten as an advance from tour. Which is pretty good. Yeah. Right. And well, the difference is I get five times as much per book. You know. Right. Well, Tim did the has, is doing Kickstarters now, right? So yeah. he he raises the money in advance. Well, that intrigues me. I've heard Tim Tim Pratt talk about doing a Kickstarter, and uh, again, that's something. As an old school writer, I had trouble wrapping my mind around that. You know, spare changing people. To, I feel like I'm really excited about that. Yeah. Well, and then Tim told me this this amount of money that he'd gotten. So yeah, I might someday do maybe like. The people like my wear novels. I could do a Kickstarter for, yeah. for a fifth one. You know, the people get they want to be part of that process, and and they can't, they couldn't before, right? Mm -hmm. It was all mysterious and behind closed yeah. doors, and and now they can actually sort of insert themselves a little bit. You yeah. Know? And just recently, I got, I mean, I got a, a nice piece of money from the Institute for the Future to write a short story for them about some aspect of the future, the aspect of of what's going to happen when uh, all objects are networked. And they said, you know, we'll pay you, again, about as much what Tor, Tor would give me for a novel to write this short story. And then they're going to make it Creative Commons, and it's going to be on Boing Boing. That's pretty cool. So that's, that's the other thing that can happen. Your other cash stream is that you can start having people sort of paying you. It's it's like the thing of saying bands make money from appearances rather than mm -hmm. from selling CDs. Right. So it's sort of like a personality thing. Right. But that's, I mean, that's nice. Though, uh, well, Bruce, Bruce Sterling, he's, you know, he makes a huge number of public appearances. He really, he's, you know, he's an extremely good speaker. Yeah. Corey does that. Yeah, Corey also does that. Bruce has this trick he uses when he's speaking, is that uh, he always sounds sarcastic. You know, he always sounds like he's making fun of what he's saying. 
And so he'll be presenting some cool thing about the future, but he sounds sarcastic. And so then the audience is thinking, well, he's telling you this cool stuff, but he actually knows more. <laughs> he knows the next thing. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not that he's doing it consciously. It's just uh, the way he His talks. Way, yeah. yeah. But, yeah, I've always enjoyed my dealings with him. Well, I've, I've enjoyed all my, my co-authors. That's one thing about science fiction that you don't see as much in mainstream literature. You don't, you don't see people collaborating very often. Right. In science fiction, it's, it's much more common. So. I wonder why. Uh, well, I mean, a literary person might say, because we're writing worthless crap, and it doesn't matter <laughs> anyway. We're like house painters, you know. But, I don't know. I really. hope not. Yeah. I don't know why it is. It's like, I mean, jazz and rock, you have people collaborating a lot. But, uh, yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed my collaborations. Because when you're a writer, you're alone a lot of the time, and then... When I'm done with a novel, I'll then often do a collaboration. So I've written stories. I used to love writing stories with Mark Laidlaw, but he's, he's not writing. I mean, I might do that again. He's sort of into game design to some extent these days. And then written the stories with Bruce Sterling that I mentioned. And then uh, Paul DeFilippo and I just wrote a story that's going to be in, um, in Asimov's in July. And then... Uh, when does it be called Hawk come out? And wrote stories with Terry Bisson as well, and somebody who I'm forgetting. Well, never mind. <laughs> anyway, these days I'm working on, uh, oh, John Shirley. Okay. Mustn't forget John Shirley. Okay, and then, uh, the big, uh, what I'm working on nowadays is a, a novel called The Big Aha. And I'm pretty close to done now. I'm, uh, I would say I'm, 80, 85% done. And uh, the idea, I guess what started me going on this book was, one thing I mentioned earlier, I like this idea of a telepathy where you can't remember. But I also like the idea, I've always enjoyed writing books that have to do with uh, genomics or the biotech revolution. I think I think people correctly say that's going to be the one of the really big technologies in the 21st century. And we're still just barely wading into it. And uh, I don't think it's unreasonable to suppose that in a century or so, we really would be seeing a lot of our devices would in fact not be manufactured machines anymore. They would be plants and animals that have been designed to right. behave in ways that we consider useful. And even things like a knife or a glass, it gets easy enough to imagine plants growing those things for us. I mean, it goes back to people, primitive countries, I mean, they are using our coconut shell to drink out of. Right. We could tweak it so this is more, more and more what we like. And communication devices, those again, there's this all this interest in squid skin. Squids, the skin can do almost anything, you know, cuttlefish. Right. And that would be clearly a really great visual display. And electric eels send out electromagnetic pulses. And so, you know, that could be the basis of a sort of wireless communication. So there's... It's funny because it kind of brings things back around full circle because, I mean, most of the technology, it feels like the origins of it come from things that 
you know, you see out there in nature. It's not like we really came up with anything completely brand new, you know. Well, that's true. Yeah, we said we're, we're going to manufacture these. But, uh, so I wanted to do, I, I wrote a book a few years ago called Freck and the Elixir. And that was a book where, that was set in 3003, and that was a book where everything was biotech. But then I wanted to come back to a world like that. And so I've also learned not to ever say the date in a novel. <laughs> you don't put it, want to put in your sell-by date. Right. Okay, so I, w I was saying, so in the big aha, I wanted to have a book uh, where it was all live things. And it's not set so, so far into the future. It's more like, oh, more like 2100, something like that. And uh, another thing that I wanted to have happen in the book I've always, as somebody, I was born in 1946, and then, uh, so the, the Summer of Love was the year I graduated from college, and uh, so I, I really liked that period, and then it was over so quickly, it seemed like, you know, it was just, bam, you know, it was getting really good, and then you had Altamount, and then uh, Disco, <laughs> and suddenly it was over, you know, the 70s, uh, and I wanted to do... I want to have a story where something like that was happening, but I didn't want to be based on drugs uh, because everybody by now has sort of oh, sort of ossified opinions about drugs. You know, right. they're for them, against them, and it sort of closes the imagination. Right. And so, the, so I wanted to have something where there's some something that is giving these people this sort of. Uh, cosmic experience but and then I thought well we'll use quantum mechanics so if you're a science fiction writer I mean there's these various sort of nebulous finger hand waving tools yeah hand waving them yeah and then uh, and something about quantum mechanics that interests me is that there's these sort of two modes in quantum mechanics of you can think of the world as evolving in a smooth, wave-like pattern, but then as soon as you start measuring things, then it's this sort of choppy, discrete pattern. That's what they call the quantum collapse of the wave function. And so then I had this idea that, in my own mind, I've always, this is an idea I've actually had for many years, is that I feel like there's a pulse that happens maybe, oh, maybe three times a minute, maybe more often than that, maybe 30 times a minute where I'll sort of merge into the, the place around me. Like, you know, it's a nice day, you're looking around, you're not really verbalizing to yourself, you're not forming opinions. And then you sort of snap back and you say, oh, well, that's, there's so-and-so, I have to ask them for something. And it's almost, it's such and such a clock, I have to get in the car and do something. Right. And there's these sort of two modes, and just to call them something, I call them the cosmic mode and the robotic mode. And you're sort of, it's almost like ra uh, sonar. You just kind of ping out with the cosmic mode, and then you pull back mm. the robotic mode and say, what am I going to do about it? Right. Yeah. And so then the, the gimmick that I have in the big aha is that people get quantum wetware. <laughs> There's a great phrase, quantum wetware. So it's, wetware is already sort of a, an intriguing word. It's sort of like the what's going on in your body, your DNA, your, right. your, your chemicals, and then make it quantum. Where, where you can consciously control how rapidly you do the oscillation between cosmic mode and robotic mode. Right. And so these guys, they're sort of, 
they're party people. They just wedge it open. You know, they just get the switch. They wedge it to cosmic, and they're just cosmic, you know, all the time. <laughs> Turned on. Yeah. <laughs> Tuned in. Yeah. So oh, no. it's, it's it's like they're acid heads, but they're not taking any drug. Right. Them. Right. And so, uh, and then they get these 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 sort of animals they've made. Like instead of a car, you'll have a a road spider, something like a spider, and you ride on the back. And you're making those things. You're giving them quantum wetware as well. And you can sort of get into the vibes with them and make them change their form. And so the world becomes sort of more spacey. <laughs> I imagine. And then, of course, you always need you always need something bad, you know. So and it's always happy. It's always good to have an alien invasion. You know. I agree with the alien invasion. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's these these things that are sort of sticking. They're like mouths from another world or another dimension. They're sticking into our world and, and eating people. And then so they're they're having to deal with that. And uh, and then the book's called the Big Aha. It's sort of that's you always have the dream of getting the big aha. You know, the big vision beyond the white light. Right, right. And they're. Uh, they're sort of seeking after that. And then there's this also this Zen thing where I was looking for enlightenment, but it was here all along. Right. Just the now moment is, is really the ultimate big aha. So that's, that might be that at near the end they're saying, well, maybe that's, you know, it's like, you know, the Wizard of Oz, you know, here I am in my backyard. Right, but right. But I'm seeing it with new eyes. Right. And so that's, I guess... Uh, and you're almost finished? Yeah. So I'm not quite sure who's going to publish it. Uh, I guess I'm putting a little more sex in it than... Well, I used to know if, if for sure I was going to... If Tor was going to publish it, then if I... It might be that uh, I should have less sex. Yeah. I don't know. David Hartwell once said to me, well, if you're talking with the 13-year-old audience... There's some 13-year-olds who are very interested in sex, and some who aren't. Right. And you can guess which group is the one that reads science fiction. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great quote. Yeah. That is an excellent one. But, I mean, they may... It's not like... The book isn't really about sex. It's just... I mean, these are acid heads, you know? I mean, they're having a party. <laughs> So, uh, well, there's an alien invasion. Yeah, yeah. I just did the scene where they have this ballroom, they're having a big party, and then these things—they're like wormholes. They're like these big brown balls pop in and start gobbling people down. And it's you know people are kind of upset, <laughs> and uh, it's—I'm having a lot of fun with it. It's sort of—I do like the classic SF. Uh, I call them the power chords. Yeah. You know the the you know it's sort yeah. of like. That's why I always loved the, the band, the Ramones, because they were really just playing classic rock and roll, but they were... They were screaming it. <laughs> yeah, 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 and really just hitting those power chords yeah. and uh, just making the most out of them. And that's, that's to me, part of... That was one way I thought of cyberpunk, was the idea of taking the classic SF things, alien invasions, you know, telepathy, giant ants, and just... Turning them up to 11. Yeah, turning them up to 11 and... <laughs> And having fun with them, right? Yeah. So that's that's sort of what I'm doing in a big aha. And again, I, I may find a publisher, but if not, I'm, 
I'm confident I can. I mean, I know I can self-publish it, and uh, but uh, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, I know. I think it's you know. I think self-publishing has a. It does have a sort of like checkered past. People would think of it a certain way, but the publishing fields feel so limited right now in some ways that it it's at least. Well, it's you know, stuff still getting out there, you know. Well, it looks better and better. It's really the only wrinkle for me is the publicity thing. But if I if I plan it a little better next time, because frankly, I mean, the ebooks finally are picking up. If I look at my backlist royalties, the ebooks are definitely quite a bit higher than the the print copies. Mm -hmm. And uh, with new books, it's still more. The best sellers are still doing a lot in paper. But the thing is, again, given that they're there aren't any bookstores practically anymore. There's no bookstore anywhere near Union Square in San Francisco, yeah. which is kind of incredible. Oh, yeah. I know. What's the and you put something on Amazon, people don't care really who the publisher is. Right. And I only, I, I only know of, like, there's a Barnes and Noble in Emmerville. Awesome. Oh. And then that I only know about the little bookstores. You know, there's just not. Yes. One in Jacqueline and Square, that, that was Borders, I guess. Yeah. But there were like three Borders in town. Oh, yeah, and there used to be a, a Barnes & Noble on, on Shattuck. I don't know if that's still there. And Cody's is gone. It's 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 insane. So uh, it does make, certainly the self-publishing model makes more sense, but you always f feel like uh, you get a little more visibility with the publisher. But oh, they, definitely. Yeah. But again, there's that trade-off where they're going to give you 10 or 20 percent at best right. and, and, and you're going to have to hope that they're <laughs> accounting it in a way that is to your advantage yeah <laughs> yeah there's a lot of trust yeah there's a lot of trust so yeah but i mean self-publishing they're just paying it into your bank account right. as they sell that's, that's very nice 